Allow me to read the scripture. It comes from Luke chapter 20, verses 9 to 19. He went on to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard, rented it to some farmers, and went away for a long time. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants so they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. He sent another servant, but that one also they beat and treated shamefully and sent away empty-handed. He sent still a third, and they wounded him and threw him out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my son, whom I love. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they talked the matter over. This is the heir, they said. Let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When the people heard this, they said, May this never be. Jesus looked directly at them and asked, Then what is the meaning of that which is written? The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, but he on whom it falls will be crushed. The teachers of the law and the chief priests looked for a way to arrest him immediately because they knew he had spoken this parable against them, but they were afraid of the people. And this is God's word. You know, the the Bible says a great deal about our behavior that can only be understood or explained in terms of a very, very deep, a very deep dynamic of emotional and spiritual angst, repressed, a very, very deep anger and hostility that we repress in our souls. And you can't understand yourself. The Bible says you can't understand yourself until you understand what that anger is, what the root, the heart of that anger is. Now, modern psychology teaches us that the things that we repress has a way of contributing to our behavior. It powerfully controls you, dominates you. It starts to express itself, manifest itself in many, many ways outwardly, primarily because you don't really know that it's even there. A lot of time it's hidden to you. Now, in other words, what we're saying is that we're, we repress something and we know, that at, we know that we repress something at one level, but it's never at the level that we can actually address it. And so the Bible says that there's something that we repress even beneath other things that we're repressing. So we got layers of repression, layers of hostility and anger that we're repressing until we go deeper and deeper all the way down to the core of our hearts, the very deep values and the things that are driving us. It goes beyond the level of psychology. Modern psychology only takes you to a certain degree of your repression. Maybe it's your history. Maybe it's your, your upbringing. But the thing is, the Bible says it goes actually even deeper than that. So deep, so deep that there are layers of anger that you start to unpeel, uh, to peel away. And there, there are layers and layers and layers until at the root there are values, core beliefs that you have. And those core beliefs drive us because they're so incongruent with, the, with God himself and his word that there's an animosity and there's an enmity, there's a hatred towards God. The Bible says that the human heart is not just that we're indifferent to God. The Bible says the human heart is not just that we don't like God, but we have a hatred towards Him. Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1 says that we repress this hatred, that we we hate what we know about God, that we repress it. 
and it's affecting our lives. It's powerfully controlling us, drawing us out, manifesting in many, many different ways. And that's what this parable is about. Our inherent hatred towards the Father that loves us. For the past two months, we've been looking at the parables of Jesus. It's a series, a new series, I suppose. The parables of Jesus. Parables are stories that have been told with the intent to teach. And as rabbis told these parables and taught them, um, the, the parables have these ironic turns that are intended to shock the people who are listening at that time. And if you actually listen for that, listen for the truth of the parable, those ironic twists are intended to shock you. And the reaction to this parable shows us exactly what the Bible says, right? Because here Jesus is saying, you are angry at God. You say you serve God. You say you love God. You're religious people, but you actually hate God. And what happens here? The moment that they hear this, what do they do? They want to arrest him. They want to kill him. Verse 19, they want to arrest him. They want to kill him. That's their response. What about you? We're going to take a look at this parable. You read uh, scholars, you read commentators about this parable, and they all pretty much say the same thing. The parable consists of three very, very distinct relationships. Three distinct relationships. Key relationships inside this parable. Very, very easy to see. So we're going to look at the, the structure of the parable, and we're going to see what each of these relationships teaches us spiritually about our condition. Because each of them teaches us something very, very radical about ourselves, about our relationship to God, about what he did in light of our hatred. The tenant's relationship to the owner, the tenant's relationship to the messengers that the owner sends, and the tenant's relationship to the son that the owner sends. Our relationship to the owner, our relationship to our messengers, our relationship to the son. First, our relationship to the owner, the tenant's relationship to the owner. It's not too difficult to figure out what's the relationship here of the tenants to the owner. They work for him. They tend the vineyard for him. The text says that a man planted a vineyard and then he goes off on a journey and around harvest time, he basically, uh, so what's he doing? He's leaving this vineyard to a group of tenant farmers. They're renting it from him. They're tending it for him. The man is the owner and the farmers are entrusted with this uh, vineyard to tend for him. Now, what's the relationship? What's the obligation of the tenants to the father, to the owner, sorry? Very, very simple. The owner, he assumes all the risk. It's his investment. Everything that happens is at the owner's expense, the owner's money. And the tenants, they work, they tend to the vineyard, and they get their pay. But they have to tend the garden in a very, very particular way for the owner. You have to tend the the vineyard according to his law, his word, because it's his. And they have to do it for his profit because at harvest time, he wants a piece. He wants a a taste of the first fruits of the vineyard. He wants a a portion of the fruit. So they're tending it according to his law and they have to tend it for his glory, for his profit. And what that means is this. The tenants, they can't treat the vineyard any way they want to treat the vineyard. The tenants, they're they're agreeing to work. Thus, they have a job. They're going to get paid. But they have to tend it for the sake of the owner, for the owner's profit. You know, they get growth. They get flourishing. But the owner gets the profit. They're advancing the owner's cause. Now, even in an agrarian society, which these people that are hearing the parable, an agrarian agricultural society, agrarian society, the people understood this concept. 
that here these people are the tenants. They're renting. They've been entrusted with the vineyard. Their job is to take care of the vineyard. And as they take care of it, what happens? They grow, they nurture, and they flourish. And in the process, they're flourishing. But it's all for the owner. And it has to be done according to his way and it has to be done according for his profit. Even in a pre-capitalistic society, they understood this. Now, earlier in this chapter, which we haven't read, we learned that the main thrust, the main group of people that Jesus is talking to are the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They're the religious people. The religious leaders of Israel. It's very, very common in the Old Testament for, for the prophets of God to call Israel God's vine, God's vineyard. So God gave this land to his people. It became their homeland. But he gave it according to his law. And he gave it for his purpose. So he gave it to, you know, he gave them the law, he gave them his word, he gave them the temple, all so that he could propagate his way, his law, and for his purpose, for his gain, for his advance. So the people, you know, the first people that the parable was aimed at was the religious. He's calling us, in essence, his people to look at our lives. We were called to live according to or govern you know, our lives according to his law, according to his word, but for his glory and for his profit, not according to our wisdom, not according to our tradition, not according to our education, and not for our profit by, themselves, by itself. Think of it this way. You, every one of us, we have a biological life. We have an emotional life. We have a social life. We have plenty of gifts here, lots of gifts, lots of talent, the collective creativity that exists in this room alone. Lots of gifts. And depending on what, who your parents are, depending on where you were born, what context you were born in, you have a certain amount of power. You have a certain amount of privilege. You have a certain amount of wealth. You begin all sorts of things. And you have to recognize that regardless Regardless of what you have, regardless of your gifts, regardless of your talent, regardless of your creativity, regardless of, of all that you've been given, you are a tenant farmer. That's what Jesus is saying here. You can't look at, you can't look at your life, what you have, your possessions, your talents, your intelligence, your looks, your figure, your health, life itself. You can't look at these things as if you are the owner of your life. You have to look at your life as a tenant. Now, what do tenants actually do in this, in this parable? What do they do? Clearly, the problem, the dysfunction in this parable is what? The tenants think and begin to act like they're the owners. You could tell by the way they treat the owner, the way they regard him. You could tell by the way they treat the messengers. You can definitely tell by the way they treat the son. It's almost as if the son and these messengers are trespassing into their lives. They're not going to listen to the messengers. God, obviously we know that this is God, right? But the owner, he sends three messengers. They're not going to tend to the owner. They're not going to tend the land according to the owner's word by his law. The owner wants some of the fruit. The first fruit, he says. It's the harvest time, so he wants some of the fruit. It's the first fruit. He wants some of the profit. They're not going to give him a piece of his profit. Why? Because they believe they're the owners. They're going to rule according to their word according to their law. What is Jesus saying here? He's saying that the religious leaders here are failing to listen to God's word. 
They're obeying God's word, but they're failing to listen to the heart of God's word. And, as, and they're really using, they're obeying with the purpose of building themselves up for their profit, for their glory. Now, what does this have to do with us? The Bible tells us that it's the nature of the human heart to think of yourself as the owner of what you have as opposed to uh, the tenants, that we're tenants. We're all tenants acting like we're owners. How do we do that? You've got to look at your life. Most of the blessings that you have in your life, you had very, very little inherently to, do, to have to do with it. Most of the blessings that you have, most of the source of the blessings that we have, think about your intelligence. You had very little to do with the fact that you were born an intelligent person. Think about your freedoms. You never chose to be born in this country. It had very little to do with your choice. Think about your education. The root of it was your intelligence. Think about your relationships, your context. You did not choose the context in which you were born. You did not choose your parents. Think about your privileges. Think about all the things. You know, Malcolm Gladwell in the book Outliers, if you've ever read it, he says, you know, if you think about it, most of the things that, we've, uh, that we enjoy for our glory, for our purposes, we had very little to do to earn. You know, it's usually a product of genetics or a product of your context or a product of your culture or a product of your, the country in which you were born, a cultural legacy. The Bible says very similarly, virtually the same thing. You have a mind. The Bible says you can't just do anything you want with your mind. You can't just think what you want to think, believe what you want to believe. You have relationships. You have sexual desire. You have sexual ability. The Bible says you can't just use that any way you want to use it. You have a certain amount of power, a certain amount of possessions. You have a certain amount of uh, privilege, a certain amount of wealth. The Bible says you can't just use that any way you want to use it. Modern society will tell you, I get to choose what I want. Nobody gets to decide for me. You get to decide your own values. You get to set your own agenda. Jesus here, right off the bat, by looking at the tenants and their relationship with the owner, says exactly the opposite thing. Modern society says, you've got to act like the owner. You've got to take life by the, you know, by the reins. You've got to control life. Jesus says, no, you are a tenant. Now, there are all sorts of ways that we are tenants that try to act like an owner, that we, that we act like an owner even though we're a tenant. You know, for instance, one thing we do is we say, I'm going to decide how to use my mind. I'm going to decide how to use my sexuality. I'm going to decide how to use my money. When the Bible is actually saying you are called to tend to the vineyard by God's law for his glory, for his profit. Now, some of us are incredibly intelligent. You were born this way. You have a great educational background as a result. What do you do? The moment you meet with someone and you ask them what they do, you already start, the, the superiority inside already starts to grow. You start to look down in the heart, in the core, people who are not as insightful as you, not as well-educated as you, who don't have the same pedigree as you. Some of us are incredibly proud of the families that we've been born in. And so the very moment that somebody says something about your family, you feel this in in their hostility. Why? Because the thing that, you know, you believe that that, that has built you up has been tarnished. And you so much don't like that. Or when somebody looks down on you because you have a lesser degree 
or the lesser pedigree, oh, it hurts. Yeah, that inner hostility starts to build up. Why? It's that insecurity coupled with that inferiority, coupled with that desire, the ego. You know, when modern psychologists talk about the ego and how it rages and starts to grow, it's that deep inner anger that we've repressed that starts to manifest in so many different ways. We see this in our children all the time. Our children, from the moment that they're able to walk, or actually the moment that they're able to grab things, what do they do? They automatically grab all the wrong things and try to put it in their mouth. They automatically try to walk in areas where you tell them, don't walk there, and they, they look at you, and you know what they're going to do. They just start to walk there. Why? Why do they do that? It's because inside, from the beginning, it's in our spiritual DNA, where we, we believe we are the master of our fate. We are the captain of our souls. Invictus, the poem Invictus. We are the master of our fate. We are the captain of our souls. That's what we believe from the, from the moment we're born. That's what we believe. The Bible says it's our nature. The Bible says that we all live in this illusion of independence and self-reliance when your true condition is dependence and weakness. That's what the Bible says. It's our nature. On one hand, we know we're tenants. On the other hand, we hate that fact. We hate that truth. On one hand, we know we owe the owner. But on the other hand, we don't want to give to the owner. Not even a portion of who we are. We want to live for ourselves. We want to do things on our own. We want to take credit for all the things that we do. We don't want to admit that everything is by sheer grace. Whether it's common grace that's given to everybody or just specifically we've just been blessed, which is all actually part of God's providence. We've been shown grace in our lives. These lives that we live as tenants, we've been shown tremendous grace, but we act like the owner. Now, somebody says, you know, a lot of people don't even believe in God. You know, what do we mean? What do we mean when we say that we, we all know this? Think about this. Is there a God? Is there a God? Somebody will come up to me and tell me, maybe there's a God. I don't know. Who knows? Frederick Nietzsche, great German philosopher, says there absolutely is no God. But he also continues on. He doesn't just end there. He says, if there is no God, when we die, we all rot. We just rot. Because we've been born from nothing, and as a result, we end, we go back into nothing. When this sun dies, when life ends as we know it, all civilization dies forever, that's it. So Nietzsche says, it doesn't make any difference as a result in the life that we live. Nietzsche says, it doesn't make any difference whether you live a life of compassion or whether you live a life stepping all over other people, whether you live a life of tyranny on one hand or grace and compassion on the other. It makes absolutely no difference because it's all the same. Whether you live, at the end when you die, it all rots. It's a meaningless existence. He says there's no such thing as right. There's no such thing as wrong. There's no difference, according to Nietzsche, between a human being and a cockroach. Why? Because it's all by chance. There was no God. And because there's no God, there's no meaning, there's no purpose, there's no div- divine design. There's no reason to live a constructive life. We're all, we can all live violent lives. And that's what he predicted. Nietzsche predicted the most violent generation in the history of the world. there's no God, you belong to you. But there's a catch if there's no God. Because if you belong to you and there's no God, then you are the owner of a vineyard with no meaning, with no meaningful existence in which you can rule. So you're never going to find joy, not at the end. 
And no matter how successful you are, it's a meaningless existence. You're the owner of a meaningless vineyard. So whether you believe that there is a God and he created us, and if you believe that, that's a choice. You can believe that, uh, and that means we owe him everything. Or there's no God, and we have a meaningless existence. Now, we all know that genocide is wrong. We all know that rape inherently is wrong. We all know that, um, that we're, human beings are greater than cockroaches. We all know that inherently. We all believe that. There's this transcendent sense in us of right and wrong. There's this transcendent sense in us that life is intended for meaning and purpose. We all know it. It means we all know inherently that we're tenants. We just hate the idea. We hate it, so we repress it. We hide away that truth. We repress that truth. We're angry at that truth. And what happens? The anger starts to bubble up and boil up and pushes through in our ego. It pushes through in our sense of values, in the things that are core in our lives, and it's impacting us, and it's impacting our behavior, and it's impacting our relationships. That's what happens. That's the human condition. We want to be the owner. We want to be in control. The result, we're absolutely troubled. We're absolutely just messed up. The first relationship here, the tenants to the owners, teaches us that we know we have an obligation to the owner, but we absolutely hate it. And so we repress it. And that anger that builds up starts to shape us. It affects us. And it shows. Now, the second point is the tenants and their relationship to the messengers. Because notice... As the owner sends the messengers, what happens? They beat the messengers up and they send them off. What does this tell us? The immediate thrust of this parable, we have to remember, is that Jesus is reminding the religious people that God had sent prophets, prophets who were called to tell Israel that God, what God has given you is all grace. It's a vineyard that he's entrusted to you. But what happened You know, we were called to to tend according to God's word and for his profit, for his glory, but instead what happened? Israel has chosen to tend according to their own wisdom, their own word, for their own glory, for their own profit, for their own gain. And so God sends prophets literally over the years and literally they beat them up and they killed them. That's what happened. Beat them up and they killed them. Now we're going to unpack this. What does this mean? This parable reminds us, this parable teaches us several things. First, it teaches us that God Never, because he is merciful. Inherent here is the mercy of God, the compassion of God. Why? Think about what's going on here. You own a piece of land. Somebody is renting from you their land. Rent is due. You go to collect the rent. So you send, I mean, you have lots of land, so you send somebody who tends uh, and sends messages for you. It's a bill collector. The bill collector goes and says, rent is due. The normal thing to do, if you, know the, if you understand the nature of your relationship is, you pull out your checkbook, you take from the profits that you've gained, and you write that check and you send it back to the owner. But here, what happens? They beat up the messenger. The owner sends a second messenger. They beat up that messenger. And progressively, it actually gets worse. The owner sends a third messenger. They beat up the messenger. And then he sends them his son, and they kill the son. They kill the son. Progressively, it actually gets worse. This parable reminds us, first and foremost, that God in his mercy never just gives us one chance. 
never just gives us one chance. God is so merciful. God is so gracious. He's persistent. He just sends messenger after messenger. This parable reminds us that God sends repeated messengers into our lives to remind us that we are not the owners, that we are tenants, and that he is the owner. God sends repeated messengers to shatter our illusion of independence and self-reliance, self-sufficiency. He sends repeated messengers to show us our true condition. We believe that we're, de- that we're independent. He sends messengers to he- teach us that we are dependent. We believe that we're self-sufficient. God sends messengers to teach us that we are insufficient. We believe that we are absolutely adequate, capable. God sends messengers to teach us, to remind us that we are inadequate and oftentimes incapable. The second thing it teaches us, you know, look at this. God sends different messengers. Clearly, it's not just one messenger. He sends different messengers. And all, all, each time the messengers show up, they, get, they have the same type of message. Um, and what that inherently teaches us is that God sends many different types of messengers to you to teach you the same thing. I'm going to give you some examples. Some of us, these are very simple, very easy examples. Some of us, the messenger is your parents. Your parents are trying desperately to wake you up to get you to see the truth about yourself. But since your parents are not perfect, what you've really done is you've hooked into their flaws so you have reason to dismiss them. And so you ignore them. That's one way that we beat up our messengers. We dismiss them, we ignore them, right? Now, secondly, another way, this church, this church This very church often, you know, or ministries that you are a part of, um, is like a messenger. Wonderful thing to be a part of a church, to be part of a community. And uh, this very church is one of God's messengers that shows us, that teaches you at least on a weekly basis or twice a week at least, um, that you are not the owner, but rather you are a tenant. That you're utterly dependent on the owner. That you are called, you are responsible to tend to his vineyard, to tend to his people. There are many, many ministries inside and outside of the church. But some of us, we come and we hear, we sit here, and the truth hits us, and it shows. But other people come week in and week out, and they regularly dismiss the messenger for whatever reason, and it shows. It shows in the resistance. It shows in the scoffing. And that's another way that we beat up our messengers. Some of us, have good friends. Our good friends are probably the most vital messengers, in a sense. Good friends in the church, good friends who are around the church, and they come, and they, like your parents, they want to get you to see the truth about who, yourself, who you are. But what do we do? We often beat them. We often cast them out. They hurt us, so we cast them out. Then there are circumstances. Then there's suffering. Suffering is oftentimes a messenger. You experience tragedy. You experience frustration, disappointment, longings that are unfulfilled, disappointments that that point to longings that are unfulfilled. Sometimes there's even blessings in our lives. Blessings. You know, in some cases, we we remember we we were taught towers fall on people. In other cases, or towers fall on you. Other cases, towers fall on other people and you're just watching because towers have not fallen on you. You're experiencing blessings in your life. What are those messages? Those are all messengers telling you this is all by sheer grace. We all live by grace. 
And these are messengers that God is sending for the purpose to teach you that you are not in control of your life. Think about it. If you see a tower falling on somebody else but not you, what does that tell you? You are not in control of your life. That could have been you. Probably should have been you in a sense if you look at it a certain way. We are not in control of our lives. We are not the owners. We are absolutely incapable, inadequate to be in control. Now people say, why should I believe in a God when I see all this wrong, all these wrong things that are going on in my life? Now think about it. These are messengers. All those things that are going wrong in your life, those are messengers. We look at it as if God is punishing us. If there is God, he must be evil because he's punishing me. So we reject the messenger. We reject God. But look, life is absolutely crazy. Life is crazy. If you've learned anything with all your years of education and all your experiences in life, we know, we learn that life is absolutely crazy. You can set your goals. You can set your agendas. You can decide, you know, what your values are. And if life is going pretty well, according to what you're, uh, you know, what you're hoping for, according to your control, according to your agenda, just wait. Because it won't forever. Some people say, well, you know, things are going pretty well with my life. I've got money. I've got a good career. I've, I just bought a house. I've got good health. I'm good looking. I've got hair. <laughs> you, know, uh, you know, you say, Guy, guys, ladies and gentlemen, the odds favor the house all the time. The house will always win. The house is always going to win. The house is intended to bankrupt you. Life will never let you. The Bible tells you, one thing you can take away from the Bible, the Bible will teach you over and over and over again. Life will never let you, in the end, be an owner. You think, well, I feel like an owner. I own a house. I feel like I'm in control of my life. Life will always make you believe you're an owner. But it will never, in the end, let you be the owner. It will never let you be an owner in the end. No matter how hard you fight for control, no matter how hard you try to control your life, no matter how hard you say, you know, I'm going to do it my way, this is my life, it's never going to work because life will never let you. No matter how hard you work, no matter how hard you try. Now listen, if you, if life will not let you act like an owner, the most obvious explanation is probably what? You're probably not an owner. (laughs) The fact that, not, that life never lets you do, life never turns out the way you want it to turn out, is not an argument against the existence of God. It's actually, if anything, shows you that you're not an owner and somebody else is. It's, it's actually a very good argument for the existence of God. So you've got to be reasonable. Life is a mess. You know, life is constantly coming at you. Every one of us, we see the world around us. We see our own lives. We look at our own character. No matter how hard you try to control that, you're never in control, never in charge. You're a tenant. Every part of the life we live is a gift of sheer grace. Life, if anything, will teach you you don't have what it takes to be in control. If you could be in control, you probably would be in control, but you're not in control. You're not capable of having control. You're not, you don't have what it takes to master over your life. We are inadequate tenants at best. Your conscience isn't yours. Your creativity isn't yours. Your sexuality isn't yours. Your intelligence isn't yours. Even your relationships. We're terrible at managing our relationships. We cannot do this. We are inadequate. These are all gifts from God. They were entrusted to you as a tenant. 
the Lord is saying this, in mercy, I don't just give you one chance. I give you many chances. I'm going to keep sending you messengers. Are you listening? That's what Jesus is saying here. How do we respond to them? Think about something very, very practical, our tithes and our offerings. Most of us, if you're really honest with yourselves, we struggle with our offerings. We struggle with our tithes. Why? You know why? I'm going to tell you straight up. It's because you still think you're an owner when you're just a tenant. The tithe represents a first fruit, literally a first fruit of all their best. That's what it actually used to represent. And uh, it goes all the way back in the ancient kingdom uh, concept. And, uh, you know, this tithe that represents the first fruit of everything that you value, when we hold back, what we're saying is, you are not the king. I am in control. This is my life, so I'm going to keep it. Why? Because it's by my law and for my profit, for my glory. That's what we're saying when it's really intended for God's profit and for his glory. What are the messengers that God is sending in your life? You know, that you are kicking and that you are hitting and that you're throwing out, that you're casting out and treating them shamefully. It could be people, sometimes very, very difficult people in our lives. But in spite of how they've wronged you, they're actually messengers from God. No matter how deeply they've hurt you, in most cases, they're actually messengers from God teaching you once again that you are not in charge. And you're never going to get over the anxiety. You're never going to get over your anger. You're never going to get over the discouragement that you experience every day until you're willing to say, I don't necessarily need this if God isn't going to give it to me. I realize I'm acting as an owner when I'm really a tenant. That's what repentance is. Putting weight behind that truth. That, wow, I realize I'm not an owner. I'm actually a tenant. You've got to put your weight, the weight of everything you've got behind that truth. You need to see yourself as a tenant. So the first point is, there is an owner, and it's not us, and we as tenants have an obligation to that owner, but we absolutely hate it. So we repress it, and that boils up, that repression ultimately starts to manifest itself in different ways. The second is that God sends messengers into our lives to remind us, to tell us over and over again that same truth. You are not an owner, you are a tenant. You are not in control, but we fight. We're always fighting for control. The third point, last point, is our relationship to the Son. Notice, if you read the text carefully, I mentioned this just before, that as the text goes on, you see a progression. Every messenger that comes by, they actually do a little bit worse to this messenger until they get to the last messenger, right, and and, and they kick him out, right? And finally, um, this hostility has been pent up and it's constantly growing. It's now raging, and it's manifesting itself constantly. What happens? The owner says, well, I'm going to send my son. Maybe they'll respect the son. And so finally the son shows up, and that enmity that existed erupts. And what do they do? They kill him. They kill him. The Bible here is teaching us that underneath all of our anger, underneath all of our hostility, underneath all of our complaints, underneath all the self-pity that we often experience, there is a resentment of the fact that we're not in charge. There's a resentment. So when the sun comes, these tenants say, it's that resentment. 
they know every single one is a reminder that they are not the owner and they absolutely hate it. So when the sun comes, they say, let's kill the sun. Because if, once he sends the sun, what greater message could there be? What greater messenger could there be? If we kill the sun, we become the owners. We become the master of our fate. We become the captain of this vineyard, the captain of our souls. That's what they say. So the Bible teaches that underneath all this hostility is a resentment that we are not the owners, a resentment that we're not in charge, and results in a a hatred towards the owner, right? Think about it this way. The one time that God chose to make himself vulnerable, and all throughout the history of the world, God is never, never vulnerable in fact, he is very mindful in protecting us. He, he clothes himself in a veil, always. But the one time, because in otherwise his holiness would consume us, but the one time that he chose, the one time that he chose to make himself vulnerable to us, the one time that he could be damaged, the one time that he made himself weak, what do we do? We pounced on him, we arrested him, We took him to trial, we beat him, we flogged him, we shamed him, and then we killed him, we tortured him, and we killed him. That's what we did. That's the resentment. That's a picture of the resentment, the hostility. We are totally incapable of even admitting our hatred over the fact that we have no control. It's a part of our DNA. It's a part of our identity. So what Jesus is saying, because it's grown from the very core of our spiritual DNA, it's going to take a drastic supernatural change an intervention by God himself, the spirit himself. People say, well, I don't really hate God. I talk to, talk to people all the time. They say, I don't really hate God. I mean, I'm indifferent to him. You know, I mean, sometimes I disobey with his commands, but I'm not angry at him. Here's how you know that you're a Christian or here's how you know you're becoming a Christian. Because it takes the Holy Spirit to really see that sin is more than just disobeying a law or breaking a law. It takes the Holy Spirit to see that sin, rather than being about breaking a law, it's an attitude, an entire holistic attitude of anger and resentment toward the fact that Jesus is king and his throne is over your life. That's what it is. It takes the Holy Spirit to see that. And the resentment is very easy to spot. Many people come to me and they say, they say this to me. They say, you know, I'll believe. I'll believe if you can answer me this question because no one's been able to answer this for me. Why is God, you know, such and such and such and they'll ask me this question. And so I, you know, in my, put my theological hat on and try to explain to them, you know, in a short two or three minutes what took years and years to learn, right? And, and you're, you're trying to explain to them. They say, well, you see... I don't get it. I don't understand that. I don't, I don't believe that. It's, and that's what they say. You're not convincing me. What are they saying in response? That's the hostility. I don't get why God is like this. I don't get why God does that. Until you answer to my satisfaction, I will not believe. What does that mean? I am the owner. You, God, answers to me. God answers to me. That's what we're saying. What we're really saying is God answers to me. I don't own a single thing, so I reject the message. In other words, it doesn't matter how smart you are. Underneath the veneer of all of your investigation, of all of your questions and your inquiries, there is an anger against God that controls 
even the question. That's what the scripture says. Even the religious people are like this. This is not for people who just hang out in clubs and bars. This is for the people who hang out in the church and in small groups. You know, think about this. Why are so many people who are so religious, so good, so moral, also so proud? Why are they so proud? And they're so smug, and they're so judging. Why? Because inside, that's the anger. That's the anger that's boiling up. Because their goodness is their way of of staying a little bit more distant from God. Because if I'm good, the throne of God is a little bit less. The shadow of that throne is a little less over me. That throne of God is not as much because it's over the people who are bad. I'm good. It's my way of getting God out of my hair. That's what it is. You know, what, what we're saying is that if I'm, if I'm good, sure you're good. If I'm good, then I feel better than other people. I don't need to admit that I'm a sinner and that this is all by God's grace, that even my salvation is all by sheer grace alone. Religion without the truth that you're a sinner saved by grace alone is what? It's a way for people to still kind of have some semblance of control over their own lives. And as a result, religious people are angry and they're always comparing themselves with other people. It's a way of them making themselves feel better than other people. You know, if you're irreligious, you're constantly comparing yourselves with other people. He's richer than me. She's better looking than me. You know, that we're always saying that. But when you're, when you're a religious person, you're always saying, oh, I'm better than him. I'm better at this than him. Oh, he doesn't even know this. You see, we're constantly, all of life is a picture of that deep-rooted anger that continues to boil up. And that deep-rooted anger is against God himself. Most people never admit that they hate God. But it's the, it's the reason why we're oftentimes smug instead of warm. It's the reason why we're oftentimes self-righteous instead of humble. It's the, when, when somebody, you can tell when somebody's religious because they'll talk about sin and how we're all sinners. But the moment you confront them about their specific sin, they get very, very angry. That's how you can tell very much how religious you are. <clears throat> the reason why we're self-righteous instead of humble is because we show a contempt for truth. That the only way, that it's only by grace, it's only by the mercy of Jesus Christ that we can actually have access, that God can actually be walking with us. We still, as religious people, we still think that it's our goodness that saves us deep inside. And we're angry about that when we're told that it's not. We don't want to give that up. How do you know that you're a Christian? It's when you begin to see that you got to see this, right? This is how you know that you're a Christian or that you're becoming a Christian. Christians are the only people in the world that know that they hate God. Christians, on one hand, they know that they're no longer enemies of God, that we're reconciled through the cross because of Christ, that we know that we have a love for God in our hearts that's been given to us, shown to us, nurtured in us. But on the other hand, we know that there's still so much enmity left so much anger left in us. There's still a lot of remnants of that anger. We know that in any given Sunday, you can come in and you can have bad feelings toward another person in this room. Right? And what happens is then you hear a sermon on forgiveness and you say, oh, I'm so convicted by this. Right? Two days later, you hear something about that person, you're right back the way you were a week ago. That's us. We so easily forget You know why? It's because that is an example of the enmity, the anger that's still left in us. Several years ago, now probably over a decade ago, there was a tyrant, a dictator, 
in a country on the other side of the world that was deposed and executed. And um, so the people were free. Everybody in that country became free instantly. When that person was caught, they found him in a hole in the ground. They brought him out. They caught him. And what did they do? They executed him. And instantly when the people saw that he was executed, they knew they were free. But what happened? If you go to that country, it is, it is in devastation. There is havoc still. There's still fighting there. Lots of fighting still there. What is that? It's the remnants of the anger. It's the remnants of the tyrant that still existed. I have a friend who fought there um, at the thickest time of the war in the thickest city where the war was the greatest. So it is the most hostile part of the war at that time. And he was there, and uh, once in a while I would either get a phone call from him while he was there or a letter from him. And he would say, you know, I know we're doing a good thing. He would tell me about all the devastation. He says, all the buildings are crumbled down. All the people are, you know, they're, they're all running around. Everyone, it's just chaos, utter mayhem. But even when you step into a cab, the cab driver will tell you that as scary as it is, those are the remnants. As devastated as the land is around him, those are the remnants. He says, they're free. Even the cab driver knows, I'm free. We're free, but there are remnants of the hostility. A Christian knows that. A Christian knows that we are utterly free, and yet the remnants of that hostility still exist. And, and as a result, even though the tyrant's gone in our lives, the remnants are still there. Listen, if you know that you hate God, if you know that inherently there's an anger or an anxiety those are all remnants of the enmity that exists between us and God. It means, if you know that, if you believe that, it means you are a Christian or you're becoming a Christian. Otherwise, you're in denial still. You still think you're in control of your life. You still think that you're the master of your fate. You still think you're the captain of your soul. When you look at the cross, what do you see? What did God do? What can be done here? Jesus says, very quickly, Jesus says, the stone that the builders rejected has become the capstone. He's quoting from a passage in the Psalms, Psalm 118. Jesus says, this is a, Jesus is a stone. He's saying, I am the stone. You can either build on me or you can be crushed by me if you reject me. Now, this is what he's saying. It's incredible here. When the sun shows up, we killed him. That's our anger. But the wisdom and the beauty of the gospel is this, that the very act of killing the sun was the way that the owner, that God would use to rid the world of the anger once for all. In the book of Ephesians, the Apostle Paul writes that on the cross, although we are enemies of God, through the death of Christ, God put to death the hostility, the enmity, that's the actual literal word that he used, that exists between God and man. When Jesus was born, the angels came around the shepherds and the angels said what? The glory of the God shone around and the angels came and said what? Peace on earth. The war between God and man is over. When you look at the cross, what do you see? What do you see when you look at the cross? You see that it's only Christ, he alone raised up to absorb the wrath of God. If you look at the lengths that God is willing to go to make you a friend of him, Although you're angry, although you don't acknowledge him, although you're running from him, how does he make you his friend? God made you his friend. He brought you in. You know how? On the cross, Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus was beaten up. Jesus was tortured. Jesus suffered. Jesus was shamed. 
Jesus was cast out. He was actually crucified outside of Jerusalem, which was the vineyard. He was cast out. And not only was he cast out by his own friends, cast out by the people around him on the cross. He said, God, you cast me out. In Isaiah chapter 53, the prophecy referring to Christ said he was cast out from the land of the living. He was utterly cast out. He was made an enemy. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. God made him who had no sin to be sin, to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What that means is we become the righteousness. That means we can be friends. That means we can belong. That means we now have, now have the power to defeat sin, to grow in Christ, to grow under as tenants entrusted with the vineyard of God. Growing, earning, loving, being faithful because God in his faithfulness. Why? Because Christ became the curse. Christ was killed. Christ became the enmity. He became sin. That's how. These people, they say, no way. May this never happen. May this never happen. Jesus said, it will happen. It has to happen. You have to believe that. Otherwise, you still think you're in control of your life. All of life, friends, all of life, comes down to this. Either A, you say, this is my life and I'm the owner and then you're going to be crushed by life circumstances because you realize over and over you are not in control. Those are the messengers. You can say, this is my life. I'm going to build on my own foundations and if you do that, you're going to suffer helplessness and despair at times. You know, small joys but then confronted by the next helplessness and despair. Or you can see that Christ was treated as the enemy for you. That's his love. That's his mercy. That's his compassion. You build on that, and it says you will be built up into spiritual stones, raised up in a spiritual house of God. That's what happens. Either you're going to be crushed by the stone, or you're going to build new life on the stone. So new that they call it the new birth. Your life is so new, they call it new birth. How dangerous is it to give control of your life to somebody who gave everything of himself, emptied himself, and then died for you, and then tells you, it is my intention so that you will flourish? How, hard, how dangerous would it be to give control over a king like that? Jesus became the enemy of God for you. He was slain on the cross as an enemy for you. So that we, you know, these tenants, they were evil tenants. And they said, oh, if we just kill him, the inheritance is ours. In a way, it became true. Because through that slaying, we became heirs. We became God's sons. Will you trust in that? If you trust in that, then you know that it's all by grace. Everything you have, you don't have to work so hard. You have to earn so hard. You don't have to fight so hard for your rights. Do you trust that? You know, every single time something little goes wrong, it just devastates your life. It's because you're not trusting. This is all by grace. Do you trust that? When something big happens, when you do trust that, the trust bank in your life grows in the good times. So when the devastation happens, there's plenty of trust left in the bank. Will you trust that? This week, will you trust that? Let's pray.